Last night was fun, wasn't it? Um, keep praying for those who made decisions or maybe even those who are on the verge of decisions. We do want to pray that the Spirit will continue to move and work in their lives. Um, but man, I love, I still have a bit of an old soul. Uh, I love when we have a choir. Don't you guys? Uh, they sound fantastic. Um, last week, we started a new series called The Perfect King. You know that we've spent an entire semester walking through the life of David in a series called The Broken King. First week, last week of The Perfect King, what we did is we connected the life of David with the life of Jesus. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to take that a step further. Uh, one of the things that I've been thinking of over the past few weeks about Christmas in particular is how deeply theological Christmas is. I think sometimes we get bored with theology when we shouldn't get bored with theology. It, in fact, shapes everything that we do and believe about God. Um, but when you come to this time of the year, it's amazing how deeply theological Christmas is. So what we're going to do over the next two weeks is we're going to talk about theology. We're going to kind of get to the deep parts of Scripture and talk specifically about why we believe what we believe, but two things in particular that we're going to talk about as it relates to Christmas. Today, we're going to talk about the humanity of Christ. Next week, we're going to talk about the divinity of Christ. We, as a church, believe that God is both fully God and fully man, okay? So we believe that, and because of that, we want you to know why we actually believe that. So if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first Gospel of the New Testament. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin today. Then we're going to turn the page over to Hebrews chapter 2. So what you can do is go ahead and find the book of Hebrews. It's deeper into the New Testament. So go ahead and find the book of Hebrews chapter 2 and mark it because we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1 and then we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 2 for the bulk of today's time together. So Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll begin. And we're going to answer this question this morning. Why does the humanity of Jesus matter? Why does the humanity of Jesus matter? Now listen, I want to make sure I'm very clear about this. Again, although we're talking today about the humanity of Christ... We do, in fact, believe that God had to be, that Jesus had to be fully God and fully man in order to atone for the sins of the world. So I just want to make sure we're clear about that. And just because we're diving into a, a rather deeply theological time together this morning doesn't mean you need to check out, all right? These things were very important, not only to the biblical writers, but they are also extremely important to the life of the early church, and they should be important to us this morning as well. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 together this morning. Most of us, when we read the Christmas story, we tend to go to Luke chapter 2, right? But today, we're going to read Matthew's account of the same story found in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now pay attention to verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Listen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Let's say that again. They will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took her as his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This text in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, is an extremely rich text. In fact, if you read it this morning with me, you probably are going to walk away with more questions than answers. And that's okay. Because what I've learned about asking questions to Scripture is that it causes you to dig a little bit deeper to find the answer to those questions. So if you go home today and you're wondering, well, why does it say that Joseph divorced Mary? I thought God hated divorce. What you're going to learn is they weren't really married yet. They just separated. He was, he was thinking about separating from Mary. They were betrothed. That's exactly what the author is telling us here. So even though they weren't fully married, they were legally married, but what we're going to learn in just a moment is they had not consummated the actual marriage. This is a beautiful text of Scripture. What Matthew is describing here is the events of the birth of Jesus. And one of the things that I like to say as it relates to this text is that Mary miraculously conceives a child, and she does so from the Holy Spirit. And that should cause us to ask two questions. Well, really, why does Mary miraculously conceive a child? Why would we refer to that as a miracle? Listen, the conception of this child is a miracle first because Mary and Joseph had not come together. The Bible is very clear about that. It says that they did not come together. So Mary, she was a virgin woman who has now conceived a child. She'd been betrothed, that means to be promised, to Joseph, but what the Bible wants you to know is, again, that they had not yet consummated that marriage. So this is a miracle conception. It's a miracle child, first, because Mary and Joseph had not come together. But secondly, it's also a miracle because the eternal God is assuming human flesh. The eternal God is assuming human flesh. When you think about this, this is the God who, who formed and fashioned everything that you and I know. He is the author and the creator of everything that exists. He's the alpha, the Bible says, and the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He is the God of the entire universe. And this God, he has always existed with us in spirit. But here in Matthew chapter 1, we're learning that he's no longer just going to exist in, in spirit. He's now going to come in flesh, which the Bible says his name will be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So this brings us to the question that we stated at the very beginning of our time together. Why does the humanity of Jesus matter? Why does it matter? What difference does it make if Jesus was indeed fully human or not? So to answer this question, we're going to go over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and that's where we'll be spending the majority of our time together this morning. 
Hebrews chapter 2, if you go ahead and turn there, Hebrews chapter 1 is a very beautiful portrait of Scripture as well. I would encourage you to read it. Um, The author of Hebrews does not make one command to the church um, in the first chapter of this book. The first command actually comes in verse 1 of chapter 2. So to set the stage for this, we need to kind of find out what the author of Hebrews wants us to know before we dive into chapter 2. All he wants you to know is that this Jesus is indeed truly the Son of God. He is fully man and he's fully God. Listen to how he says this in Hebrews chapter 1. In verse 2, he says that he is the heir, talking about Jesus, of all things. That's who Jesus is. Just like God, he's the heir of all things. Then he says that he made the world. So Jesus was there at creation with God and so was the Holy Spirit. Then it says in verse 3, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. So we learned that in verse 3. Then it also tells us that he upholds all things by his power. And then in verse 3, it tells us that he made purification for all sin. Only God could do that. He was the only perfect one. So Jesus, being fully God and fully men, came and and made purification for the the sins of men. And then it also says that then he sat down at the right hand of God. So he's sitting on the throne, erring with the Father. Then it says in verse 4, I can't even read my own handwriting, that's pretty bad. So we're just going to read it from the Bible. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of the righteousness is in the scepter of your kingdom. I don't, that's not even verse 4, because I can't read because of lights. Sorry, guys. Having become as much superior to angels... Um, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he's more excellent, the Bible says, than even the angels. What really I'm getting to is verse 8. Verse 8 says that he is almighty God. There you have it. This baby born in Bethlehem from a virgin mother is not just a human baby who has skin, flesh, and blood, but according to the Bible, he is indeed almighty God. You know, this is how Hebrews begins. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. But what I find so interesting about the book of Hebrews is shortly after the book of Hebrews was written, you had men and women started, started already to push against everything that the author of Hebrews said. In fact, what they started to say is, man, Jesus was not fully God and fully man. Instead, Jesus, when he came and he appeared among us, he was just an illusion, Some of you know that this is called docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Some of you say that differently. There's 12 different ways of saying that, so chances are you're wrong if you say it any other way. Docetism. What does that actually mean? It means it's the idea that the body of Jesus was just a phantom. That the body of Jesus, as he lived and he dwelled among us, was just like a ghost. It took the notion that God did not actually take on human flesh and live among his people. It was just an illusion that people saw. They saw God, but not really in flesh. But not only does Hebrews condemn this idea, idea, really this heresy, but the early church repeatedly condemned it too. When you read the book of 1 John chapter 4, when you read 2 John verse 7, what you're going to see is that anyone who pushed against Jesus being fully God and fully man, they, John refers to them as really the spirit of Antichrist. That's how passionate these biblical writers were about this particular theology. See, understanding this doctrine was extremely important to them. 
And because it was extremely important to them, church family, here in 2023, this doctrine does indeed need to be extremely important to us as well. So again, the question, why does the humanity of Jesus matter? Why does it matter? I want to give you two reasons I believe it matters this morning out of this text found in Hebrews chapter 2. First, it matters because Jesus' humanity makes him relatable. Jesus' humanity, it makes him relatable. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says this, and by the way, if we have time at the end, I want to read all this text together because it is really, really good. But for the sake of time right now, I'm just going to pick the, the verses that I need to pick out. So Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 14, it says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 17. It says this. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. What is the author of Hebrews trying to say? He says in verse 1, he says, or in chapter 1, that this Jesus truly is God and he is clothed himself in human flesh. He's fully God, he's fully man. And now he says in verse 14 and 17 of chapter two that this Jesus became like us. And he became like us, and what he means by that is he's relatable. He understands us, he gets us. He knows what it's like to live in a fallen world. He knows what it's like to live in a world that is completely fragmented and broken. He understands us, he felt what we feel. He walked where we walked. He's walked through the things that we have walked through. Jesus is not unfamiliar with our sorrow and sadness. In fact, he's very familiar with our pain and our suffering and our sadness. He's familiar with all things. This is a modern day way of saying it. Jesus gets you. He gets you. He gets me. He's relatable to us. Jesus experienced, in fact, some of the exact hardships that you and I are plagued with today. Some of you, you walked into this building this morning and you are walking through a dark season in your life. Maybe you're not walking through a dark season in your life, but quite frankly, things aren't going the way that you wish that they would go. So you wouldn't refer to that as dark, it's just not going according to your own preference. Some of you, maybe you're not walking through any of that, but you're going to be soon, or you have recently, and you're now on the back end of it. But here's the truth. No matter what you walk through, no matter what you experience, chances are Jesus felt what you feel. Jesus has already walked through it. Think about this. In John chapter 11, the Bible tells us that Jesus experienced deep grief and sadness. Chances are in a room this size that there's somebody here who walked in today experiencing deep grief and sadness. Maybe it's because of the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's because of the loss of a child. Maybe it's because of the loss of a job. Maybe it's because financially you're flipped upside down. Maybe it's because business that you're, you're leading is not going according to plan. In fact, you've hit a dead end. But you're experiencing deep pain, deep grief and sadness. Jesus felt that too. But the Bible goes further to say in Matthew chapter 26 that Jesus encountered sorrow. Maybe you're here this morning and you're walking through a season of sorrow. I was telling Mark just a moment ago that we had just learned that a member of our previous church is on life support. And he's on life support after being married for about seven to 10 years with his wife, but he's been struggling for seven to 10 years with sickle cell. 
And he's had to battle this and battle this and battle this. And for the first time, they were making plans for their week on Sunday. He got sick, and now on Wednesday, he was put on life support. And his wife put out there today soliciting prayer, asking for people to pray for them because now she's having to make decisions that she never thought she'd have to make. And I just started to think about her this morning as I prayed. Her name is Candace. If you feel led to pray for her, her husband's name is Tony. I started to think, you know what? God, I can go to you and I can pray for my sister, Candace. I can pray for my brother, Tony. And I can know that everything that they're feeling, you have felt. That you're relatable to them. And everything that their close companions and close friends and close family members are feeling, that sadness, that deep sadness, that deep sorrow, God, you felt. You can relate to them. And some of you, you need to hear that today, that as you walk and encounter your own sorrow, that Jesus has been there before. He can relate to you. What about Luke chapter 22? The Bible tells us that Jesus was betrayed by his close friends. And some of you, you know what it's like to walk through a season of betrayal by close friends or family members. And you can go to God and turn to God and know that this God has already felt the exact same thing you're feeling. What a place to go. When you're walking through betrayal, what about Mark chapter 3 tells us that he was rejected by his own family? And some of you, you know exactly what this feels like. Maybe your family has rejected you. They've pushed you outside of the circle simply because of your biblical convictions. And the more you walk with God and the stronger stances that you make, even amongst your own family, the more like an outsider you start to feel. Jesus can relate to that. Jesus understands you. He knows what it's like to feel rejected by his family. Mark also tells us that he was angered, yet he was angered without sin. Maybe some things in your life right now are frustrating you and angering you. Things that are righteous for sure, but nonetheless, they still frustrate you. Jesus felt that. In Luke 22, we learn that Jesus cried in desperation to the Father. And some of you, for year upon year upon year, if not month upon month upon month, you have been crying in desperation to the Father, and you're wondering, God, do you even hear me? David prayed the same prayer. Lord, turn your ear to me. Be attentive to my prayer. This is crying in desperation to the Father. And Jesus is saying, that's okay. I've been there. I know what that is like. Mark chapter 14 tells us that false accusations were hurled at Jesus. Maybe you felt that, that false accusations were hurled at you. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't even say anything. And all of a sudden, someone's accusing you of something you did not do or saying something you did not say. And that hurts. Jesus gets you. He's walked through the same emotions that you're feeling. One of my favorites is a crowd of people surround Jesus. He ministers to them. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, brothers, we've got to get away. <laughs> like, these people are flat out exhausting me. So let's get in the boat, let's go across the sea, and let's just go into a desolate place and pray. And maybe you have felt like this Christmas season that people around you have flat out exhausted you. And if you don't, just take a tr quick trip around the square today, and there's no doubt going to be somebody that exhausts you. The way people drive during Christmas is ridiculous, is it not? I went to Sam's Club yesterday. I told my wife I made a tragic mistake of going to Sam's Club on a Saturday. Nonetheless, a Saturday before, you know, the week before Christmas. I go to Sam's Club. It took me 45 minutes to get the items that I needed to purchase. It took me an hour and 15 minutes to stand in line. 
And you're thinking, well, that's because you didn't use scan to go. I know how to use scan to go. Okay, I got it. But I was redeeming a $50 gift card that somebody gave me. And to use the gift card, you got to go through the line. Okay, it, it was not worth $50, I promise you, sitting in that line. The entertainment was definitely worth it. I mean, I got to see one lady run over a guy's feet with her cart. That was an interesting engagement after his feet were run over and she didn't apologize. Um, I got to see another man, I got to see another man actually hit another guy with his cart because he was standing there in line and this guy wasn't paying attention. He just, bam, right into it like a, like a fender bender type thing. And it was, that was interesting too. But you just, it's interesting how people act during this time of the year. They flat out exhaust you if you're a product of any of that. But Jesus felt this. These are the emotions that we, that, that we experience in our lives. These are the emotions that he experienced in his because he was fully human. That's why his humanity matters. His humanity matters because he gets us. He became like us so that he could understand us, so that we could go to him when we're walking through these emotions in and of our own lives. What difference does that make, Trey? I mean, honestly, help me cross the bridge here. What difference does that make? This is the difference that it makes. Sometimes you and I have the tendency of approaching God as if he's this distant God that's unrelated to his people. And instead, the reality of the God that you and I serve is he's not far from us. Like he understands us more than we even understand ourselves. And that's the beauty of who he is. He's not a distant God who's unrelatable to his people. He's been there, he's done that, and he gets us. Does that encourage anybody this morning? Just to know that whatever you're walking through, that Jesus gets you. I thought about that this week, and the truth of the matter is, is I don't always get God. Most often than not, more often than not, I don't get God. Sometimes I look at God and I'm like, why are you doing that again? Like, I don't understand why you're doing it that way. I wouldn't do it that way. You know, that's a shame on you for doing it that way, because it's not going to work out the way that you think it's going to work out, and then it always works out the right way, and it's just weird. I don't always get God, but the beauty of the text is that God always gets me. You know, although Jesus is like us in many ways, there's really one way the Bible tells us that he is unlike us. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, that he is holy, he is innocent, and he is without sin. And if there's nothing else that encourages your heart today, let that be what encourages your heart, that among you is a God who is holy and who's innocent and who is without sin. He's God, God in flesh among us, totally, completely relatable. So why does Jesus' humanity matter? First, Jesus' humanity matters because it makes him relatable. Second, Jesus' humanity matters because Jesus' humanity is a necessity for our salvation. It's a necessity for our salvation. Listen, what does that mean? If Jesus did not become human, he cannot atone for my sin and your sin. He had to become human so that he could do the work that we could not do Let's read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, through 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of of Abraham. Our salvation is as much dependent on Jesus's humanity as it is his divinity. You understand that? 
Our salvation, my salvation, your salvation is as much dependent on Jesus being the Son of Man as it is Jesus being the Son of God. Both his deity and his humanity are necessary for our salvation. This is why Hebrews 2.17 says it this way. Notice this, the verbiage in, in the, the, the verse. It says this, therefore he what? Read it. Is it on screen? He what? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus had to become flesh and blood like us so that he could experience death for us. It was a necessity. He had to do it. Verse 16 says, For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. See, Jesus could only help the offspring of Abraham if he became an offspring of Abraham. It was a necessity for our salvation. I like how Michael Kruger says it. He's a seminary professor in North Carolina. He says it this way. Jesus could only represent humans if he became a human, like a real human. And if he cannot represent us, then he can't redeem us. That's why it's important that Jesus can represent us. It's because if he can represent us, then he can indeed redeem us. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is getting at when he says it this way. Jesus became flesh and blood, look at verse 14, so that through death he might destroy the power of death, that is, the devil. Man, this is good. The Bible is telling you that Jesus nullified the devil's work at the cross. You know what that means? That Jesus rendered the power of Satan, hell, and the grave inoperative at the cross. That means if you are a child of God this morning, death and hell and the grave no longer have victory over your soul. Victory is now yours in Christ Jesus. The death of Jesus is the prescription for victory in the child of God's life. And that is reason this morning to celebrate. It doesn't hold you down. If you're in Christ this morning, the Bible is saying that you no longer need to fear death. It does not hold you down. This is how you were created to live. Think about that. Think about that. When God created man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2, God created them to live. God didn't create man and woman to die. Death didn't come until after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. He created man and woman to live, to thrive, to flourish, to prosper, to multiply, to populate the earth with worshipers of Jesus. That's what you were originally created to do. But after the fall, death enters the world. Think about this. When God sent Jesus to earth, he didn't send Jesus to earth like us to live he sent Jesus to earth to what? To die. He sent Jesus to earth to die so that you, who were now dead in trespasses and sin, might live if you place your faith and trust in Christ. So he's restoring you completely, not through your own work, but through the work of the cross, through the work of Jesus' death in your place. This is how 
Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? That's who we celebrate this morning. And then the author of Hebrews adds in verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. See, Jesus didn't take on the form of an angel because he didn't come to die for angels. Jesus took on the form of us because he came to redeem us. Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. (laughs) Notice what the author says. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. What was a priest's job? A priest represented his people. He had to be a part of the people that he represented. So he represents his people. It was necessary for the Son of God to assume the position of the Son of Man in order for him to represent man because he's a faithful high priest. So he becomes a part of us so that he can represent us. Now the question is, is what actually does the high priest do? What does he do? The high priest would intercede on behalf of his people. He made atonement for sins by sacrificing lamb. That's what he did. People kept sinning, so priests kept sacrificing. People kept sinning, so priests kept sacrificing. But you know the problem here. The problem is that even the priests were imperfect. So guess what? Before they could sacrifice to atone for your sin, they had to first sacrifice and atone for their own. This is what makes Jesus so different than the rest of humanity. Jesus was the perfect priest making the perfect sacrifice, which was himself. See, all the sins of the world, that's past sins, that's present sins, that's future sins, they were laid upon the perfect sacrifice on the cross. He is the eternal Lamb of God who didn't stay dead, but the Bible says he rose from the grave, and he says in Hebrews, he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He conquered everything that you and I could not in his perfection and in his divinity and in his humanity. This should drive us to do what? It should drive us to have a greater appreciation and really even a greater affection and devotion to him as our king. I mean, we have nothing to offer this God but our own depravity. We have nothing to offer this God but our own brokenness. We have nothing to offer this God but our own fragmented lives. But because Jesus, fully God and fully man, did everything necessary for us, what does he do with our brokenness and our depravity and our, our, our fragile and our fragmented lives? It says through the work of Jesus, when you place your faith and trust in him, he makes you whole again. He takes those broken pieces, those fragmented pieces, and he brings them back together so that they can model and mimic the image of his son. Church, does that mean anything to you this morning? 
Does it mean anything to you that you cannot die for you? Does it mean anything to you that the babe born in Bethlehem was really born not so that he could come and live among us, but so that he could come and die the death that was ours to die after living the life that we were supposed to live? Does it do anything for you this morning to think that you without Jesus have absolutely no hope to ever occupy the, the, the perimeters of heaven? Does it mean anything for you this morning to know that Jesus loves you so much that he demonstrated his love in this, that even while you were still a sinner, not when you cleaned yourself up, not when you got your act together, that even while you were still a sinner, he says that Christ went and died. Does that do anything for you this morning? I bet this is what it should do. It should make us sing, hark, the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Listen, hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen and healing are in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by, listen, born that man no more shall die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Hark the herald, angels sing, we're not done, listen, listen. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God, sinner, reconciled. <laughs> Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph, where? Of the, of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Glory to the newborn king. These songs that you sing each and every Sunday, they are deeply, deeply theological. They point us to the person who came to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And my question and conclusion today is this. Jesus' humanity is important, but why? What should this cause me to do? There are three things, I believe, based on Jesus' humanity. That should lead us to do. First, it should recenter our lives on the person of Jesus. If there's ever a time in the year where we need to have our lives recentered on Jesus, it's now. We use this cliche all the time He's the reason for the season. Is He, though? I mean, think about the things that you have prioritized over the past week. Is Jesus really at the center of that? Think about the gifts that you're purchasing for the people that you're purchasing them for. I mean, is Jesus at the center of that? Think about the things you talk about under the roof of your own home when nobody outside can hear you except God. Would he say he's the center of that? Chances are, in our humanity, we misplace our priorities we misplace our allegiance. We misplace our affections. We fall in love with all the wrong things and with all the wrong people. This is the time of year where we should recenter our lives on the person of Jesus. But secondly, Jesus' humanity should also lead us to remove any fear of the penalty of death. Not just death for you, but death for people you love that know Christ. We don't have to walk around in fear because you weren't created. You, you weren't sent to earth to die. You were sent to earth to live. 
And Jesus defines what life should look like. Life isn't getting a better job so you can get more money so that you can buy more stuff. Life is so that you can be connected to the Lord your God, your creator, so that you can be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth with more worshipers of Jesus. So that you can love God and love people and lead people to look more like Christ. So it should remove any fear of the penalty of death. And then see, third, Jesus' humanity should reassure us of Jesus' deep love for us. Ma'am, sir, Jesus is not some distant God that doesn't know how you're feeling. Jesus knows everything about you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every freckle on your face. He knows every single ounce of sorrow that you're walking through, every breakup, every separation, every divorce, every dad who's walked down their family, every mother who's turned her back on her her home. He knows all of it. He didn't betray you. He didn't abandon you. He didn't leave you here to figure it out all by yourself. No, he's a better God than that. He says, if you'll turn to me, I'll draw you closer to me. And I'll walk through every single thing that you're walking through with you. As one who's experienced and who's been there and who's done that. Because I love you. And I care about you. And you weren't created to do this life by yourself. You were created to do it with me. With every head bowed and every eye closed, chances are there's a man, there's a woman that is in this room. There's a child who quite frankly needs to encounter the love of God today. And maybe for the first time after hearing how Jesus is fully divine and how he is fully human, you've recognized that this God is actually very relatable to you. He knows how you feel. He knows what you're walking through. He's been there. He's done that. And you can turn to him and his ear will be attentive. He will hear you. He will shepherd your heart. He will love you through the pain and the chaos and the madness. He's not a distant God who tells you good luck, hope you figure it out. No. He wants to draw you close to his heart. And he wants to walk hand in hand with you through it all. And maybe today you're here and this morning and you're walking through separation. You're walking through a divorce. Maybe you're here and you have a father who's completely absent in your life. A mother who's completely absent in your life. Maybe you're here and some pain, some sorrow is overtaking you. The loss of a mother, the loss of a father, the loss of a child, the loss of an in-law, the loss of a grandbaby, grandma. And you're here this morning just because church is the thing to do. And right now, this morning, God is meeting you right where you are. He's saying, you can come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, you can come to me and I will give you rest. In just a moment, our staff is going to come forward. They're going to be available to talk to you. Maybe for you, you don't know Jesus and you're walking through the brokenness and the depravity of this world all by yourself. And today, you need to turn your life over to Christ. Maybe you're here and you have a relationship with Jesus, but quite frankly, you've deviated and drifted away from him. You've kind of got busy with all the things of the world, and today you need to reprioritize and recenter Jesus in your life. Maybe you're here today and you've been trying to walk through brokenness and shame and regret and guilt all by yourself. 
But today you can come to the only one who can do anything about it and he will hear you, he will love on you, and he will tell you you're forgiven. God, we ask you to work in a way that only you can in the hearts of your people. My prayer this morning is simple. Help us see that your humanity matters. Help us know that you're a God who didn't just sit on a throne and dictate and determine the results of a game. No, instead, you left the throne and you engaged the very men that you created, the very women that you created. And even when they messed up and rebelled against you, you still had a solution to bring them out of that rebellion and usher them back into the presence of God through the finished work of your son. And today we want to say thank you. We want to say thank you. But we pray that those who don't know you today might come to know you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.